from South Carolina Public Radio. This is the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on January 6, 2023. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. This episode features a lot. I told you, I told you it was coming. Now the news avalanche has arrived, folks. We start off by looking at the South Carolina Supreme Court's decision to strike down the state's six-week abortion law. The governor released his budget that includes pay raises and tax cuts. But for who? We follow up on the U.S. House speaker drama, as well as a public intoxication arrest of State Senator Tom Davis. Three federal district judges ruled that the state's first congressional district needs to be redrawn since it was a racial gerrymander. And we preview the 2023 legislative session with two of our favorite friends of the pod, Jeffrey Collins of the Associated Press and Mayan Schechter with the state newspaper. And if you love those two, you're also going to love that they'll be joining us for our live lead taping event during South Carolina Public Radio's open house event on Saturday, January 28th. The event itself is free and open to the public, but our live taping, well, you need to RSVP. And it's capped at about 100 folks, so... First come, first serve. I will try. I, I can't I can't make any promises, guys. But you can find all the details at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. That's right, folks. Our first live taping of 2023, January 28th. And you can let us know how much you like that and maybe where we should go next by calling us at 803-563-7169. That's right. The lead loves hearing from everyone from the people in power to the people that hold the power. That's y'all. So tell us what's on your mind, your hot takes, unpopular opinions, or questions you want answered. We want to hear from y'all. 803-563-7169. Now for the latest in South Carolina. Currently, the spread of COVID-19 is high according to county-level data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For the week ending December 31st, there were 10,481 new cases of COVID-19. That's 9% higher than the previous week's average. There were also three deaths. On average, 737 South Carolinians were hospitalized with COVID-19, and 86 were in intensive care. Currently, 53.8% of eligible South Carolinians are fully vaccinated. I will not be shaking hands with the live taping unless you wash your hands in front of me, folks. On Thursday, the South Carolina Supreme Court struck down the state's six-week abortion ban law in a surprising 3-2 ruling that found the law violates the state's constitutional right to privacy under Article I, Section 10 of the state constitution. Retiring Justice Kay Hearn and Chief Justice Don Beatty were expected to rule against the law, but then Justice John Cannon Few swung the vote, while Justices George James and John Kittredge dissented. The 20-week abortion law remains the current law of the land in South Carolina, as it has been since August and before the six-week law was passed in February 2021, though it was immediately blocked in courts. Now, Article 1, Section 10 of our Constitution was added in 1971 and reads as follows. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures and unreasonable invasions of privacy shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon a probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched, the person or thing to be seized, and the information to be obtained, quote. 
Justice Hearn, the only woman on the high court, wrote the 24-page lead opinion that concludes by saying, quote, We hold that our state constitutional right to privacy extends to a woman's decision to have an abortion. The state unquestionably has the authority to limit the right of privacy that protects women from state interference with her decision. But any such limitation must be reasonable, and it must be meaningful in that the time frames imposed must afford a woman sufficient time to determine she is pregnant and to take reasonable steps to terminate that pregnancy. Six weeks is, quite simply, not a reasonable period of time for these two things to occur, and therefore the act violates our state constitution's prohibition against unreasonable invasions of privacy, quote. South Carolina is one of only 10 states to include such a specific right to privacy in its constitution. And since the matter of abortion is now left up to the states, here we are. Five states have affirmed that their constitutional right to privacy includes abortion, and now South Carolina is the sixth. For how long? Remains questionable. Now remember, not even the American Constitution provides that right specifically to privacy. Though the Roe decision used several amendments to justify the right to privacy for abortion, including the First, Fourth, Fifth, and Ninth Amendments, with the concept of ordered liberty in the Fourteenth Amendment as well. The federal right to privacy for abortion was beefed up in the 1992 Casey ruling, which cited the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Both privacy precedents set by Roe and Casey were thrown out last June in the Dobbs decision, and thus the six-week abortion law was dismissed from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, where it currently was. So it became a state issue. This six-week law briefly went into effect in South Carolina following Dobbs before Planned Parenthood South Atlantic and others got an injunction and brought the constitutionality of the law before the state Supreme Court on October 19th. You may remember we had a pretty in-depth episode on the arguments on October 23rd, so if you want to get a little refresh, you can check it out. Now, in a rare move, each justice penned their own opinion on a matter they knew would spark outcry regardless of how the ruling went. They all went to extremes to show that they were not acting as legislators. Chief Justice Don Beatty concluded by saying, quote, Our decision today is neither pro-choice nor pro-life. It merely recognizes that our state constitution grants every South Carolinian a right to privacy, equal protection, and due process of laws. This fundamental constitutional mandate transcends politics and opinion, quote. In fact, that fear of being called a legislator from the judicial bench is probably a reason why Justice Few rejected the whole law since severing it or otherwise could be interpreted as just that, legislating. So Few wrote in part, quote, While I do not concur in Justice Hearn's or Chief Justice Beatty's analysis of Article 1, Section 10, I concur with them in result. Thus, this court holds the Fetal Heartbeat Act is unconstitutional, quote. Justice James said in part of his dissent about Article 1, Section 2 that, quote, It is clear that the framers did not intend to create a full panoply of privacy rights, much less the right to bodily autonomy or the right to have an abortion, quote. Governor Henry McMaster also said that the court exceeded its authority, and he, quote, looks forward to working with the General Assembly to correct this error. Justice Hearn turns 73 this month, putting her past the mandatory retirement age of 72. There are already three judges that have been approved by the Judicial Merit Selection Commission that will be up for election by state lawmakers on February 1st, should that go as scheduled. 
There will be a flurry of activity dealing with this race and new abortion legislation. So get ready, folks, because the whole game changed on Thursday. Now, in fact, if you are looking for something to do this weekend or when you have some free time, I'd suggest flipping through the 147-page ruling like I did, which, you know, gives you a complete and full understanding of what's at play here. You'll even get to see some of the justices sniping at each other in the footnotes. Another rare thing to see. You can find that at sccourts.org. And since we're talking about abortion, I figured I could add here that the Food and Drug Administration this week approved pharmacies to dispense abortion pills like mifepristone. Previously, the pills could only be dispensed at a clinic, hospital, or doctor's office. Moving on, Governor Henry McMaster rolled out his budget proposal Friday, complete with his ideas for the $3.5 billion in additional money lawmakers will have to budget with this year. Now, this is already a long episode, and I'm not going to list all of his top-line priorities because, well, numbers get old, and we'll be covering several big speeches of his over this month, in which he'll talk about these. However, I have some highlights for you because his staff describes this budget as big, bold, and transformative. I mean, they're not going to say it's lame, are they? And now, remember, this is his proposal based on agency requests that have been shaped by his office with input from the Executive Budget Office. The House Ways and Means Committee takes the first crack at writing the budget, and they'll start that next week. But McMaster's proposing investing heavy in infrastructure and education, which is where we'll start. First off, bonuses. $2,500 for all teachers. And raising teacher pay by $2,500 to get the average salary up to $42,500, with his goal of $50,000 before he leaves office. Just a reminder, starting teacher pay was around $30,000 when he arrived. The governor described his budget as this. That's what we're hoping for, for teachers uh, as well as law enforcement. Those, those are two critical things we must have. You have, must have good law enforcement, and you must have, good, you must have confidence in the safety of, of the schools. We, want a, we, we understand of, of our economic development, our uh, environmental heritage, and education are all intertwined. But, but the core of everything we do depends on education. The world's changing fast. There's more and more sophisticated technologies. We must keep up with that. We have the assets. We have the people. We know that investors around the world and around the country are impressed with our people, with our culture, with, with our state. But what we must do to take advantage of that is to be sure that we are ready, that we are educated. So whatever we can do, and we, I intend to see that we do whatever it takes to set us on a course to where we have the, the finest education in the country. There's money to boost the number of school resource officers as well and create a school safety training facility that will be run by SLED at an old Lexington County school. There's $21.5 million for police pay raises and $78 million for state employee pay raises based on requests from state agencies. The governor also proposes a $2,500 signing bonus for new state employees. Not retroactive. Also, economic development is a big push of his in this budget, including $700 million for economic development obligations and purchasing mega sites to have ready for big deals, like that Redwood Materials one down in Berkeley County. The governor also wants to put $500 million more into the state rainy day fund and $87 million to reduce income taxes due to the tax cut law passed last year. Now, of course, you've heard us talk about it before, and we're probably never going to stop talking about it. Infrastructure. 
Yes, it continues to be a focus. That's because there's so much money. And when we're overflowing with cash, especially one-time dollars that are typically used for such one-time projects, well, we got plenty of them. The state still has $580 million left over from the American Rescue Plan Act to be appropriated, and the governor is eyeing $850 million for roads and bridges, including $300 million for construction of Interstate 73 to Myrtle Beach through the PD, where highway infrastructure currently exists. Now we're talking about that American Rescue Plan dollars. A big move is sending $380 million of that to the Rural Infrastructure Authority, which is in addition to the $800 million sent to the agency last year for water and sewer improvements in communities across the state. That money actually got awarded this month. And there is still more than $1 billion in rural infrastructure needs. Here's the governor. If there's not infrastructure to move things around, then it's, it's not going to happen. But again, we have a port. We have two inland ports. Most states are not on, on the ocean. They don't, don't have that, that kind of access. And we have a great port. And with two inland ports, we're the only, only state in the country that, that has, has that. But we have to be sure that they, they're working, that they're adequate. And that's why we have, uh, our Department of Transportation is, is doing great work in, in seeing that that infrastructure is there. And that's just with, with transportation. We have to have, have broadband, as you know, we've been um, putting emphasis as, as well as funds into that, particularly in the rural areas. We've put millions of dollars into rural infrastructure for water and sewer. Also, we want to have money, as I mentioned, for the Department of Commerce to be able to, if necessary, to buy a piece of property and hold it for future investment. It, it's all tied together. We got plenty more to come on all this in the future, so stay tuned. And that's politics. Oh my God, never mind. I forgot. How could I forget the U.S. House Speaker's race? Oh my gosh, has that been going on this whole week? Who would know? It's only everywhere. That's why I put it here so we could get some real news in. Just kidding, this is news too. But wasn't it nice that it took this long to get here? Because I had some news that impacts folks besides D.C. partisan politics, which actually, come to think of it, negatively affects us right now in some ways. Anyway, here we are. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has failed, as of our taping, Friday 13 times this week to get the necessary 218 votes to become leader of the chamber, despite giving away most of his power and concessions to some 20 Republicans who don't really trust him. But that changed Friday when he picked up 14 Republicans with some of the Never Kevins changing their tune. McCarthy got 214 votes in the 12th round with seven Republicans voting for other candidates. Now, this was a breakthrough moment, folks. Fifth District Republican Ralph Norman flipped in the 12th round after getting the most media attention of his career since those January 6-related texts were released last month, actually. One to President Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 17, 2021, urging Meadows to get Trump to implement martial law. Marshall's spelled M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. Prior to that, he pulled out a loaded gun and put it on a table in front of his constituents back in 2018, which did cause quite a stir. Now, Norman, who was part of the Never Kevin block and voted against him 11 times this week, has been in major newspapers and even on Fox News Friday morning, just before Fox and Friends, saying he was reviewing an agreement with others that would eventually lead him to vote for McCarthy. Here's Congressman-elect Ralph Norman. 
and he will admit this, Ashes. He, he had these these requests, uh, things like 72 hours to review a bill instead of getting it thrown at you at the last minute and vote on it. Uh, you know, things like spending reforms, which is big on my mind. He had all that, and he waited till after the elections. And the, as we all know, there was no big red wave; it's a slim margin. Then he started talking with us, and quite frankly, that's where some of the breakdown occurred. This is the only way we had uh, to get the reforms that we thought he should have put forward anyway, and had we gone lockstep and elected him, uh, as a lot of the other Republicans did, there would be no chance to have these reforms made. Now, earlier this week, Politico's Olivia Beavers quoted Norman as saying he was willing to go six more months in voting against McCarthy. One of Norman's big sticking points was the need for more transparency in the budget process. That's the top priority for our Congress. We cannot keep this spending spree, and the taxpayers deserve better. And so this last omnibus showed that. We are handcuffed until next September, uh, when the new budget will start after September 30th, and uh, we'll be dealing with another crisis. And so, you know, is it out of out of the norm to ask for these appropriation bills to be out for the American people to look at? Is it out of line for spending to be voted on individually as it being debated in Congress? We we hadn't had a chance to have these debates. Uh, the Democrats have pushed everything, for the most part, without us. Uh, we didn't see the bills until they, until they were on the floor, and I, we're tired of it. And that's why all this has taken place. And then in the 12th round, the moment came. Norman. Norman was the only member of the seven-member South Carolina House delegation voting against McCarthy. Besides, of course, 6th District Democrat Jim Clyburn, who, like all Democrats, continued to back Hakeem Jeffries. Clyburn gave Jeffries nominating speech on Friday and noted that exactly two years ago, the Congress was under attack by insurrectionists. But the body remained resilient despite the threats to the integrity of our democracy. Here's Clyburn. In this body, we are tasked with protecting our nation's hard-earned principles of liberty, justice, and freedom for all. Every two years, the American people evaluate our stewardship and render a verdict. Last November, they invested their time and resources going to the polls and casting their votes. They expect and should get a just return on their investments. For many, maybe most Americans, this is the only investment they will ever make to help preserve the greatness of this country. For the first time in over 200 years, after 11 rounds of voting, we are unable to organize and begin to work on behalf of those who elected us to serve. Democrats are offering a candidate for speaker, Hakeem Jeffries, who's not just prepared to lead, but committed to preserving this democracy and enhancing this august body. In Politico West Wing Playbook this week, Senator Lindsey Graham's contempt for the House was on display in this passage that reads, quote, In fact, as McCarthy struggled to secure the Speaker's gavel Tuesday, 
some Senate Republicans expressed vindication about having passed the bipartisan spending legislation last year, spiking the football in House Republicans harder than anyone at the White House did. Senator Graham said, quote, I've been told you shouldn't vote for the $1.7 trillion spending bill because the House is Republican. They'll make it better. I don't think that theory is holding up too well, quote. Now, Graham, of course, was talking about that big omnibus bill, and he released a list of millions of dollars in projects he got put in that $1.7 trillion bill that no other South Carolina Republican voted for. The projects, primarily infrastructure needs for municipalities, such as water and sewer improvements, $13.3 million for the city of Charleston for pre-construction engineering and design to protect against severe storms and storm surge on the peninsula. There's also money for roads and even the equipment and curriculum needs of some colleges. Now, there are also requests for military installations in the state and $1.2 billion to continue construction of the Savannah River Plutonium Processing Facility, also known as SRFP, project to achieve a production capability of at least 50 plutonium pits per year within South Carolina. Now, this section will end shortly, and there's another politics section behind it. Yes, there's so much news, guys. But we have a follow-up on the public intoxication charge Beaufort Republican State Senator Tom Davis got on New Year's Day by Lexington police after he was found slumped over the steering wheel of his car in a parking lot where he pulled over after driving for several minutes, realizing he was too intoxicated. The initial release from lawyers said Davis was ticketed for public intoxication, but incident reports obtained by the Post and Courier and other media outlets show that the veteran statehouse lawmaker was arrested and booked something lawyers for Davis said they thought was implied when they said ticketed. Lawyers making assumptions, dangerous. Also, you can get ticketed for any number of things and not have a mugshot, but I digress. Davis was not driving at the time and was not charged with a DUI. He was released from jail after a hearing in which he received a $1,000 bond. This according to the Lexington County Sheriff's Department. Also, not mentioned in the press release. Now, Davis failed a field sobriety test that involves checking for involuntary movement of the eyeballs. He was slurring his speech and smelled of alcohol. He was jailed around 4 a.m., and he gave conflicting reports to officers and the Post and Courier, saying he left his girlfriend's house after an argument and was asked to leave, whereas he told the paper he left a friend's football party without argument. He told officers he was driving back to Beaufort, but the paper that he was heading back to where he was staying in Columbia. So... A lot going on right there with Senator Tom Davis, but we'll be right back with even more political news for you and a preview of the 2023 legislative session from two of the lead's favorite reporters. Please play some music. Let's start politics section two with some other big breaking legal news that came out on Friday, which involved the state's newly crafted congressional map that a panel of three federal judges in the state found partially unconstitutional. You may remember last fall, an eight-day case played out in the federal courtroom down in Charleston, which is in the first congressional district that is currently represented by Republican Nancy Mace, who was reelected to a second term by 14 points in November using that new map. The case was brought on behalf of the South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP and an individual voter, Taiwan Scott, who are represented by the Legal Defense Fund, American Civil Liberties Union, and the ACLU of South Carolina, among others. The plaintiffs argue that the South Carolina legislature engineered its new map to cut through black communities to suppress black voting power 
and the LDF said in doing so, it demonstrated how lawmakers hid behind arbitrary justifications to achieve their discriminatory actions. The judges wrote in part of their 33-page ruling that, quote, after carefully weighing the totality of evidence in the record and credibility of witnesses, the court finds that race was the predominant motivating factor in the General Assembly's design of Congressional District 1 and that traditional districting principles were subordinated to race. The court finds to achieve a target of 17% African-American population in Congressional District No. 1, Charleston County was racially gerrymandered and over 30,000 African-Americans were removed from their home district. State legislators are free to consider a broad array of factors in the design of a legislative district, including partisanship, but they may not use race as a predominant factor and may not use partisanship as a proxy for race, quote. Judges Mary Geiger-Lewis, Toby Haydens, and Richard Gergel said that the legislature has until the end of March to submit a remedial plan. Nancy Mace will remain in the seat, but the 2024 election must use a court-approved map. And now, to be a little biased, the best part of this podcast. Part of my This Week in South Carolina interview with friends of the pod, Mayon Schechter at the State Newspaper and Jeffrey Collins of the Associated Press. This is going to be a very short interview, so you got to watch the whole episode because obviously they are two of the best statehouse reporters there are, and they always give us a great breakdown of what's going on. I started off by asking Jeffrey how the 2022 election, which grew the Republican majority in the House to 88 and shrunk the Democratic minority to 36, also brought in 27 new lawmakers. So there are a lot of personalities going on in that chamber, and I asked him how that's going to affect things. Here's Jeffrey. Yeah, I mean, the sheer numbers are, are very surprising. I mean, the 27 new members is one of the biggest freshman class anyone can remember going way back. Um, you know, and then also they're going to be more conservative. I mean, Republicans picked up seven seats. They have a supermajority now in the House for the first time since Reconstruction. I mean, it doesn't make a huge difference in the House because of the way the House operates and its rules. Two-thirds doesn't make a big deal, but it does allow them some freedom, especially if they have arguments amongst themselves to still get things passed, even if 10 or 15 of them aren't really happy with it. Um, you know, and and another big thing is the uh, House is going to be much less diverse and much more male. I mean, they lost a few women in a chamber that already doesn't have a lot of women, especially compared to what you would think would be a 50-50 split in society. And they also lost several African-American members, too. And I mean, so this House is going to be dominated by white males more than typical. And Mayan, kind of piggyback on what Jeffrey was talking about there in terms of the, the demographics and just what we can maybe expect. Again, a lot 27 new members come in and everyone has their priorities, but I think everyone's going to soon fall in line and soon understand just how things work in the state house. Right. Well, we will really get to see um, how effective the new House Speaker is, Merle Smith. Of course, he became House Speaker last year. Um, but was reelected to the post this year. This is his first full session uh, leading the chamber. We know he has respect across the aisle, but he will be really focused, right, on getting the Republican priorities across the finish line. And so it'll be uh, interesting to watch whether he can uh, continue this coalition that he's had um, with Republicans or whether we'll see uh, more factions kind of split off over the course of the next few months. In my own, we know that Speaker Merle Smith has some big priorities, too. We're talking a lot about economic, improving economic development, competitiveness, uh, which is kind of interesting to talk about, especially after such a banner year in 2022 with about $10 billion in capital investment, 13,000 new jobs attracted to the state. That's a big priority of him to, to make us more competitive, like the governor continues to say. 
But the speaker is also interested in addressing fentanyl deaths, which have been increasing and reforming the bond system. So it seems like a good way to focus on these issues instead of some of these, you know, more social issues that maybe will wait till 2024. Uh, but if he's backing such big issues, it's pretty safe to say that these are going to go forward. Yeah, I think so. And, and some of these priorities that the speaker uh, has talked to us about and that the House Republican caucus has also uh, said that they want to push in over the next year are issues, are priorities that legislative leaders in the Senate want to do also. We, we haven't always seen the House and the Senate kind of agree on everything, but fentanyl-related legislation, um, curbing that, really kind of embracing, uh, as you mentioned, all of this investment that's come in over the last year, um, electric vehicles, electric batteries. We saw so many announcements and we'll see more announcements, I'm sure, on that. Clearly, the state wants to be at the forefront uh, of that wave. And so I do think we're going to see some collaboration on these big issues. There's already bills, especially dealing with fentanyl and dealing with the criminal justice system that uh, seem to have some some more motivation than usual to move to move forward. But, you know, again, I think this is where it still remains to be seen how uh, Speaker Smith is going to be able to kind of control uh, his his chamber while he, as I mentioned before, does have a great wave of respect across the board. Um, so far, we haven't seen a whole lot of splinting, splintering off of the issues that he wants to push. Um, you know, we're still we're, we're before session and, you know, everything can change um, once we get into session, especially, uh, you know, depending on what's happening nationally, if that infects what's going on statewide, et cetera. We don't know what will happen even during during session, whether there'll be a new issue that that now is at the forefront um, of priorities. But for now, I mean, these these big top heavy issues seem to have more movement than usual because both chambers agree that they're priorities. You can find that whole interview on youtube.com slash South Carolina ETV. And, I mean, what a great way to kick off my fourth season hosting this week in South Carolina and my six-year SCETV. My God. Thank you. Welcome to the wind-down section, our little break from the news, and we're glad you're here. This is our informal section where we become a podcast like others. Just two people sitting around talking about things that they think are interesting, but others probably don't. (laughs) Unless you call in and make it interesting. 803-563-7169. There it is. Give us some love. You can fix this is what we're saying. I just changed the intro to this section, guys. Give me some love here. Is it bad? Is it good? I just declared the pandemic over by changing that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Astute listeners will know. Okay. Uh, Gavin. We have a very short section here because it was a long pod. I very apologize. Short. But also, since it, it in the in the vein of it being short here, okay, we have a very short phone call. Oh, okay. Are very you good. ready? Yes, please. 30 seconds from front of the pod. Here we go. No! I've been waiting weeks for the SC lead to come back, and there's no long clips. I can't believe it. Daddy, 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 it's okay. It's okay. You know, at least they're back. Oh, that's true. At least they're back. Hey, guys, it's Ben Davis from uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's. Looking for the long clips this Saturday. In the meantime, hope you had a great break, and we'll talk to you later. Ben Davis with a voicemail with a bit with uh, his daughter. Oh, uh, we love it. What a beautiful uh, way to start off the new year. Uh, get, get him in the pod, okay? Start him early. Start him early. Yeah. And your wish came true in this pod, I like to think. I mean, it was a <laughs> long one. and there, The clips weren't maybe that long, but they were certainly 
a lot of talking on my part. Well, Gavin, I like to think of your talks as one big old clip. So, Ben, <laughs> yeah. thank you for that call. Love, love, yeah, I, I truly love getting the children because the pod, the lead is for the children, yeah. truly. We're rated G. Any, anyway, Gavin, you wanted uh, you wanted to bring something up real quick, yeah? Yeah, so uh, for listeners, maybe they remember last year you were talking about your friend who wanted to name his child what? Arson. Arson. Yes. Well, I found while doing some research ahead of the governor's inauguration that we actually had a governor named Ransom. Ransom? With an E. Oh. Ransom Judson Williams. Ooh, baby. Um, he, uh, uh, so it's crime adjacent. It's a crime. It's a crime. <laughs> he, I mean, you're going to jail for it, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to hold you for ransom. Now, he was the 102nd governor of South Carolina mm-hmm. from January 2nd, 1945 through January 1947. Oh, I'm getting Russ McKinney vibes from you right I now. I know. I felt, I was like, oh, back. I got one. Um, <laughs> he was succeeded by Strom Thurmond, so. Okay. Uh, back in the 40s. Ransom. Yeah. Ransom. I love a good crime name. Ransom Judson Williams. Uh, strong. He was a pharmacist. <laughs> he married Virginia Faith Allen, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Joel. Okay, I'm not going to say that. That's enough. Um, but yeah, he started off as lieutenant governor. And then when Owen Johnston resigned from the governorship, he became the governor. I think the so next trend in names, true. Jake is going to be way on the forefront of this. All all crimes. You're, you're, every child you see is going to have a crime name. You're going to have manslaughter. You're going you're gonna to have extortion. Well, all these true crime podcast junkies are like, what can I name my kid that's cool? Ex- exactly right. That's this. It's going to be the worst outcome of all that. But you're you're making your child destined to become a true crimes podcast host. Well, Gavin, you which also I don't know if they'll be around by the time they mature. Do believe that when you name this child a crime, they will do that. Yes, crime. We, we agreed to that. Yeah, yeah, which is a horrifying thing to do. <laughs> I will hold you ransom, Judson Williams. <laughs> that's all we got. Okay, that's well, fine. And then also I was going to talk about how emo style is coming back. <sighs> it's brutal. I've noticed green shoots in the field, folks. The music is enough. The music, I don't like emo. I've converted- We lived through emo. We are ground zero, baby. I converted so many of my emo friends into respectable metalheads. Okay. Uh, so uh, if anyone's having a problem with an emo they know, send them my way. Yes, and call I'll, in. I'll start out with some kill switch engage and we'll work up from there. Okay? Yeah, if uh, Allie's listening, if Mialligator's listening, she'll probably- have an aneurysm I got, talking we got about a, emo. We got to work on this, Mialligator. <laughs> anyway, uh, you call in. I dare you. Uh, Gavin, <laughs> hit him with the outro. <laughs> hit him with the outro. Hit him with the number. Have a good weekend, everybody. I'm so glad you're still listening. Yes. Thank you for listening to the pod. Thank you, Ben Davis, for that wonderful voicemail. You can do like Ben. Give us a shout. 803-563-7169. You can also leave us a message on Apple Podcasts. We're everywhere, folks. You can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. Uh, <laughs> oh, don't make me move. <laughs> no bits. Hey, man, no bits today, okay? I'm hurt. Papa's hurt. Hey, kids, all you cool cats and kittens, it's me, GJ Master Flash. I'm hurt.